Welcome to the Comcast. My name is Karis, and I'm here with Dr. Gary Howell. Why don't you give yourself a little bit of an introduction? Thank you. Yeah, I'm a clinical psychologist in Tampa, Florida. Um, I've been working with the sexual and gender minority community since grad school and even earlier than that in undergrad. And I really am a big advocate and proponent for, for the people that I train and that I work with to also be advocates for our community. Um, so that's really my lifeblood, I think, for most of the most of the years that I've been doing this is is marrying um, advocacy with the clinical work that I do. That's really cool. Um, something that I'm super interested in is always combining the idea of mental health and human rights and how that all kind of intertwines together. And I'm curious, how did you get your start specifically in the mental health? advocacy work for LGBTQ people? Uh, good question. Yeah. So I, this goes back to my undergrad years, which feels like a million years ago at this point, but I had the honor of attending an honor society convention where Jeannie White, who's the mother of Ryan White, his name was pretty popular in the late nineties, early two thousands. Um, there are a lot of HIV services that are offered under that name. So the Ryan White grants, he died of complications from AIDS at a very young age. He got a, he uh, contracted HIV from a blood transfusion. So she spoke about HIV. HIV advocacy. And that's where I caught the bug for it. And it's certainly where, you know, as I think I was 19 at the time, and I was providing HIV testing and what they called pre and post test counseling, which really wasn't counseling in the sense that I was providing therapy, but it was really just setting them up with services. So at 19, I was telling people that they had HIV or that they were negative. So for me, that was really, really heavy. And I think, you know, not having the clinical training at that time is really where I said to myself, I need to find a way to, to enhance this, uh, this process for myself. Um, I ended up leaving HIV work and then going to grad school and becoming a psychologist. And a lot of this, a lot of that early work has really informed what I do now as a clinical psychologist and the advocacy work really just comes with with the territory if you're working with sexual and gender minority patients because they are they have their own unique set of needs and you know as a gay psychologist I feel those needs along at the same time my patients do so I'm I'm well aware of the fact that there are lots of limitations there are lots of barriers to care and advocacy is really the way that we break through those barriers that's completely I mean that's just so true and thank you so much for sharing that and sharing your story I can imagine how hard that would have been I mean I wasn't around when all of the AIDS epidemic was going on, mm -hmm. but I have dealt with people who have been in very difficult situations. I've worked with sex, sex trafficking survivors. I've worked with children in juvenile facilities. I myself have dealt, kind of been on more of a receiving end of receiving very bad medical news. I struggled with anorexia for a really long time, and that's what really got me into this advocacy work for mental health and being pansexual sort of pulled me more into the LGBTQ side of it. But it sounds like you've kind of been able to do a lot of different things throughout your career, but what role do you think made the most impact that you were either in in the past or that you're in now? Yeah, I, I think I'd have to say my, just being a clinical psychologist, you know, I was trained at the Adler School in Chicago. And so the, the school is really based on this mission of social justice and advocacy. So it's kind of woven into all the training that we received in my graduate school years. So 
as a clinical psychologist, I take a lot of that work, a lot of that like learning and, and emphasis on social justice and have really interwoven it into my clinical work. I also teach students in a doctoral program who are going to be psychologists. So, you know, a lot of the advocacy that I talk about in my practice, I do with students that I'm training as well. So, and, and this weekend was our pride parade in Tampa. A, a large group of my students came out. So they were right behind me walking with Equality Florida to really kind of give a presence to an agency that's done a lot of work to advocate for our rights in the state. That's awesome. I'm actually working with a student who is currently working with Equality Florida, speaking to school boards about current legislations and stuff that have been going on. You are currently the director at the Institute of LGBTQ Health. Is that correct? And how does that organization, in your opinion, impact the mental health of the LGBTQ community here in Tampa? Sure. Um, Well, so this started out of a dream I had. I think I was sitting at a conference one day and just said, I want to do something more. I actually thought about just adding an arm to my group practice where it would just be a kind of a, a supportive arm of that. And we ended up splitting it off and just doing a separate nonprofit in 2017. We're really small. I'm a volunteer, so I don't get paid. It's just none of us get paid that are on the board. Um, so we really just offer my services are offered for free through that nonprofit. Um, so some of the things that I do on a regular basis, every other week, we have a free trans support group for teens. Um, we also have a support group for trans adults. And we have a support group for the parents of both of those um, adults and young trans and non-binary folks. So um, that's a that's a service that I was doing for free out of my group practice, but I felt it was better to move it into a nonprofit arm. And that allowed for folks to donate money and to donate things and actually get some tax credit for it, but then also for us to be able to offer more services for free. So from a mental health perspective, we do offer those free of charge. And we also have a couple of students who work in the group who offer some of those services either free or on a sliding scale as well. So we're able to offer a lot more services that way. Um, and everyone who's part of that group are licensed psychologists. So the all the groups are run by psychologists and we're able to offer both social and clinical support in that way for free of charge. I mean, that's amazing that you offer that kind of service, especially for free or on a sliding scale, because I know a big struggle, especially in the LGBTQ community, because the LGBTQ population has higher rates of poverty, um, but also higher rates of mental health issues in general. So being able to access affordable solutions like that are really important. I talked briefly about this, I think maybe one or two episodes ago. So I don't want to like completely repeat myself, but mental health care is needed, but it can also be very expensive. And I know when I was in residential, I was there for like three months and it was almost like, I I don't even know how this number is true, but it was like 1000 a day just to the general care I was getting there and insurance ran out in like three weeks. But we ended up getting a scholarship opportunity through that institution that I was at, at the hospital I was at. So initiatives like this and initiatives such as what you're doing um, are very important for people to gain accessible care. So that's, that's really awesome that you can offer those services for free. We have been talking a lot about the mental health portion, and we've sort of also covered a little bit of how the LGBTQ community has unique mental health needs. Mm-hmm. But what would you say in terms of more physical needs, how are those unique to the LGBTQ community that maybe wouldn't 
you know, apply to cis or straight people? Yeah, because so physical needs, you know, whether I, I mean, I think even things like housing, for example, especially with trans, the trans and non-binary community, they are the most discriminated against when it comes to housing. And some of the laws that have passed that are great that allowed for us to not be fired in a workplace anymore. That's great, but it doesn't cover housing. So that's still a limitation that um, we're fighting at the national level to get better coverage. But that's a basic need, just housing. The the healthcare side of things as well, like we know that most trans patients have to educate their healthcare providers on how to provide services. Unfortunately, um, I do a training for the University of Tampa nursing program every semester and on affirmative healthcare. I mean, for some of them, it's the first time they've actually even heard about trans issues or LGBT specific issues in their program, which is kind of interesting when I get to this point, because it's usually one of their last few classes. Um, but that's also the case with med schools across the country. You know, on average, it's between seven or 11 hours of training specifically to the needs of LGBT patients. Places like USF and some other institutions have far, you know, exceeded that and they do a lot better job at, at um, training their their physicians to be uh, with working with the queer community. So that that's an issue that comes up a lot, but those needs also lead to why people, you know, the lack of access also leads to why people either avoid healthcare altogether. There's certainly a stigma tied to being able to go into the physician and say, these are the things I'm struggling with. And you tack on gender dysphoria or other issues that come up that adds another layer of complexity. And, you know, it turns people off. And the second that a physician misgenders someone, or they make an assumption that someone is promiscuous because they're gay, or, you know, all those things are, that are, are instances that kind of turn people off from seeking services. So we do have more healthcare disparities in our population of sexual and gender minority folks um, than any other population. And that's because, you know, people avoid going to the doctor for those reasons. And we have higher incidences in some cases of different cancers, just because we're not getting screenings early on because we're not seeking medical services. I mean, I knew that there was, people would avoid healthcare because of being, you know, worried about having, you know, getting doctors who aren't informed, getting doctors who are discriminatory against LGBTQ people. But, you know, I never thought about it at that higher level of, you know, general screenings and all, you know, very important stuff. That just blows me away. <laughs> I'm glad that, you know, there are practitioners out there such as yourself that are trying to make a difference in that. And especially just inclusive healthcare overall has been seeing a little bit more momentum in the last decade, I would say, than obviously maybe in, in the 70s, 80s, 90s for, for different reasons. But how would you say that, you know, maybe hospitals or doctor's office in terms of implementing inclusive healthcare policies, do you think that having those sort of institutionalized is going to promote more people to go to the doctors and then hopefully that will improve both their physical and mental health. What, what do you have to say about that? Absolutely. Like, and in, this can go as basic as an intake form. It, what, what's, what are the things that you have in your office? You know, do you have posters that represent me? Do you have magazines that represent me or my community? So, you know, even in our offices, we have magazines and we have pamphlets and all kinds of information that really address all the, the needs of our community, which lets people know this is a safe place where you're going to get all the services that you might need, or at least have access to those. Um, so the very basic healthcare practices like forms, we've dealt with this for years with race and ethnicity questions of, you know, how we're forcing people to choose a couple of boxes that don't really connect to their identities. Um, so our forms have always been just fill in the blank and tell us how you identify. So that allows you to, to name who you are as a person. Um, and we don't make any assumptions. Uh, and, and the same thing is true for gender. And, and before there was same-sex marriage, marriage questions were the one used to be something that would turn people away from healthcare providers. 
firefighters, if they had to check a box on a form, maybe they were in a 25 year long term committed relationship, there was no box on the form that actually allowed them to check anything like that. So the forms I think are changing, but even in terms of just having providers that are educated around issues that are specific to LGBTQ, LGBTQ people. Um, for, for, for the sake of addressing stigma, just being comfortable talking about sexuality um, and safe sex practices and all the things that, you know, when we're working with any community, we really should be asking those questions, but we do have higher prevalence of some of the issues among the sexual and gender minority community. So having a place to destigmatize and that being an institutional practice would be great um, because it would allow people to see that it's an open, affirming practice. You know, for providers that are allies, having some kind of a sticker, you know, the GLSEN puts these stickers out for educators, you know, that lets people know it's a safe space. If you have something rainbow in your office, a a pride flag, a trans flag, whatever flag, any flag in your office that just kind of lets people know, and it can just be a sticker, you know, and that's all that someone is looking for is to say, okay, I feel safe talking about these issues that maybe no one else would allow me to talk about. Yes, I completely agree. It is, it's interesting how like something so small can make such a big impact because I feel like a lot of the times when you start talking about inclusive healthcare, some people are kind of like, that's a big change. I don't know if I want to see that, you know, applied throughout all healthcare practice. And like what you just said, it doesn't have to be something super big and, you know, society altering. It can be something as simple as getting edu uh, doctors educated, using things like stickers and pride flags. I was at the Tampa Pride down in Ybor on what was it? Saturday or Sunday? It was Saturday. Yeah, I was there and I always love going down there because when I'm in Ebor, you know, or I'm in downtown Tampa or I'm in downtown St. Pete, which I go there often, there's a lot of different symbolisms around that community that show, oh, okay, well, this business is LGBTQ owned or that apartment has a bunch of pride flags on it. So clearly yeah. I'm in a good area. I think just little things like that are, are very important. And briefly, before I kind of went on that tangent, you had sort of discussed differences and, you know, and the greater need for this type of care and this type of inclusivity for LGBTQ people. And to kind of dig a little deeper on that, how would you say the stigma surrounding mental health specifically affects LGBTQ people compared to straight and cisgender people? Sure. And I talk about this a lot when I'm, when I'm talking about couples work specifically because stigma is the defining difference between LGBTQ couples and straight couples. There's a different layer of stigma that's there. I mean, certainly the only thing that comes close with straight couples is if they if they identify maybe as poly or they're in open or, or consensually non-monogamous relationships, which would be kind of stigmatized by other folks. So that, that would be an area that would somewhat kind of level the field a bit, but the stigma piece is, you know, in, there's, there's a concept of minority stress, which really kind of looks at, we all have certain stressors that we deal with on a regular basis, money, access to food, you know, housing, all of that. So every day we wake up and we all have general stressors, but then if you are a, an ethnic or racial minority, if you are a sexual or gender minority, those intersections um, where those points meet are, are, essential, essentially vulnerabilities where things can happen. Um, so the stigma that's there is usually something that not only affects mental health, but physical health among sexual and gender minority people. So if you don't have a supportive family, your risk for suicide goes up. If you don't have a supportive family or an adult in your life, 
your risk of engaging in high-risk sexual behaviors or substance abuse goes up. Um, so those are things that are protective factors. So the more of those you have and you have less stigma surrounding your sexual or gender identity, then you have a better chance of having a positive outcome with not having some of the stressors affect you that would affect other people. But that that requires some resiliency, that requires some supports that are in place. But if you kind of look at the data and the research, it, it does suggest that stigma in our community specifically leads to a lot of longer term health issues, you know, for for people who are not out in their identities, and there's a there's a layer of shame and stress that's associated with that, um, whether it's internalized homophobia, internalized transphobia, biphobia, etc. Those are all kind of rooted in stigma and shame. And the more that that kind of sits there, and it doesn't get dealt with, it makes the rest of, you know, your functioning also be negatively impacted by that. So we do have from a health perspective, people who are experiencing, you know, it, you know, experiencing homophobia or transphobia, and I usually like to call it bigotry instead of phobia, because they're not really afraid of us. They're just being bigots. Experiencing that on a daily basis um, certainly leads to higher levels of cortisol, which then can break down your immune system and leads to higher rates of depression. So there's a health side of that as well. I love how we just got into a little bit of the, the science behind it, a little bit of the chemistry behind it. I do a lot of my own research for when I write different blogs and things. So I go through a lot of the AP site, like medical journals and things like that. So I, I'm aware of a lot of things you talk about, but when, when we start talking about chemistry, I was in AP chemistry like a year okay. ago. I just like, I died in that class. Yeah. <laughs> I actually wanted to become a psychiatric nurse practitioner. And then I took that class and I said, maybe this life is not for me. Yeah. <laughs> That's 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 really how I got into advocacy work, guys. No, I'm just kidding. But something that I find interesting is, you know, this is clearly a problem that's been going on for a long time. But in terms of current issues, have you maybe noticed in your work that certain legislations, certain current events are affecting the mental health of the LGBTQ community, maybe worsening it more than it was before? Yeah, and I think this goes back even further. You know, we still haven't fully recovered from 2016. And when that election happened, I remember having this, and my group was, my trans youth group was about three years in at that point. Um, but there were kids at that time saying, I want to go back in the closet. And this is when the right were just being stripped away from day one, you know, from day one of that administration. And, and so a lot of these kids were seeing, I don't feel safe anymore. I don't feel like I can go to school anymore. And, you know, because the platform of bigotry and hatred was legitimized for the first time, you know, in my life, it was for the first time, you could say whatever you wanted, and there was no consequences for it. And you could frighten people or terrorize people, and there would be no consequences for it. So it started back then and just continued. But now, you know, every day there's another state, another city, another county that's trying to rip away the, strip away the rights rather of our community. And that's really hard for the patients that I work with specifically um, to watch them struggle. I mean, it's a struggle for me to watch the news and not become extremely angry with what I'm seeing. But I channel it into, you know, working with Equality Florida, like I'm active in my state psychological association in Florida, and we we partnered with Equality Florida to really kind of push and put some pressure on the legislators to not sign some of these bills. And of course, some of them did, but some of the advocacy work did lead to some of the amendments that we saw, you know, that could have been really devastating, not good enough still. And the fight is certainly not over. But but every day, this kind of issue of waking up and seeing my rights are slowly being pulled back, rolled back 50, 60 years now at this point. And what that does to the mental health is, is devastating because it does feel like I don't mean anything. 
you know, it feels like my life is in jeopardy. I mean, it's certainly, if you don't have any protections, then if somebody does something to you, then what does that mean? You know, it means that they're going to get away with it. And then that's trauma you've experienced and that's, you know, nothing for them. It definitely does. And it, we already are a community of trauma survivors for, for many people. Um, so this is just another incident that can trigger or make other trauma experiences more complicated. Definitely. It has been really upsetting, especially watching the news. I remember when I heard that the Don't Say Gay Bill, which is not really what it's, what it's called, but that's what it's just called in the media, was passed through the Florida Senate. I remember just sort of sitting on my porch with my mom and I'm very lucky to have an accepting family and I know many people who do not and I'm very grateful for that. And we were just kind of sitting on the porch almost like baffled that mm -hmm. that happened. But then, you know, you think about it a little bit more and it's like, you know, there are things that we can do because it was very upsetting at the time, but it, it was uplifting to think like, you know, organizations like Equality Florida, organizations like PFLAG, you know, mm -hmm. are there for you and there you can get support. And even through platforms like this, you can help others and reach out, especially with big organizations. They have a, a lot of influence and we have kind of touched on it, but what would you say that these organizations, what is their responsibility to the mental health of the LGBTQ community if they have a responsibility at all? Yeah, I mean, because I, I think about the Institute, I mean, we, we educate, part of, our, part of our process is educating healthcare providers, you know, and we offer continuing education for psychologists and mental health counselors to be better stewards of the community and providing more. Cause you know, there are a lot of mental health practitioners out there who have it in their hearts to be a good provider and want to provide services, but they don't have the training per se to deal with, you know, things like gender identity and gender dysphoria. Um, and sometimes they do harm. So part of our mission is to make sure that people are not doing harm and to provide those kind of trainings and educational opportunities, but also putting your money where your mouth is. Like we, you know, there's, there's some, something to say as a nonprofit, we can't donate to political campaigns, but we can certainly urge people who support us to really, you know, if you're angry, put your money out there. And, you know, I'm, I have done this since I've been able to, you know, I've, I've always been part of different organizations um, since undergrad where I have, you know, either volunteered my time to give of the service. If I had no money to give, I would certainly volunteer. Um, and I would go out, I would go out and show up and I would, you know, rally other people to help get access to services. It could be as easy as signing a petition or getting a group of people to sign a petition and then getting that group of people to, you know, it's, I think it's the, the rule of 10. So if you get 10 people and you get those 10 people to get 10 people and those 10 people to get 10 people, you have a movement and very, in a very short period of time. Um, so to kind of build that momentum, you just need one voice essentially to spark it and to have people listen and have a, have a captive audience to, to hear the story. I think also using narratives about what our experiences have been builds buy-in um, to get that across. But you also don't have to have money to go and talk to your elected officials. And don't be afraid to call, email, send a letter. If they get snail mail, it's much more impactful than sending a form letter on the internet because they have to open it and then they read it. So there's there's certainly a lot more. And some of the, I teach a class on public policy, social advocacy and change. And one of the things that we do is write those letters because I've had a senator come to my class in Chicago and say, when I was teaching up there, and she said that we don't hear enough from mental health providers. So that's another thing that 
organizations that are specifically working with this community should be in touch with their elected officials. And I don't know how much all the other organizations in Tampa do, but I know that I am pretty active in that role because I, I feel that it's extremely important. So anything that comes up where they need an organizational stamp, we do it. So we sign on to, you know, the, the scary part of what's going on, you know, in the undercurrent of some of this movement is the, especially for trans youth, is to strip away the ability for them to receive services. The healthcare discrimination bills, you know, those, those are two different movements that are dangerous um, and will certainly lead to the loss of life if we don't do something to take a stand. And that's where, even if you aren't an LGBT organization, if you provide any kind of services to sexual or gender minority patients, especially youth, you have a duty to kind of step up and say, we're not standing for this um, because people, people will complete a suicide. That, that's, there's no question about that. We know that suicide rates are on the up and up um, through the pandemic already. And with these kinds of things where you take away rights, people start to feel hopeless. And sometimes that's their only outlet in their mind. That's the only outlet. So we're, we're increasing the likelihood of those things to happen. Yeah. I get so frustrated when I see organizations that sort of ignore it or say just because, you know, we're not specifically designated to serve LGBTQ uh, people, not organizations, we're not specifically designated to serve that community. It's like, but you still have, can make an impact and make a difference. And I think that that's really important for a lot of people to recognize. Slightly off topic, that was sort of why I started, I started my own nonprofit, it's called Volunteer Humanity. And it's for students across the United States, but also in other countries to earn service hours through picking a cause that they care about. And then we sponsor their project and then provide them service hours. But one of the reasons that I ended up making that nonprofit was for the reason I just said Mm -hmm. is I didn't want to nail down and say, you know, because I'm a nonprofit, I can only serve an educational purpose. So I was able to build it in a way that I can serve a lot of different purposes because my main service is the students. And through the students, we can make a bigger impact, sort of like you said about the 10 and 10. So I just feel like more people can realize that and we can help make a bigger difference, especially in getting the suicide rates down among the transgender community. Suicide is something I feel very strongly about. I've lost two friends to suicide just in the past couple of years. So it is... It's definitely a struggle, but definitely a struggle that we can overcome. And I think I think another part of that is, you know, I think not enough agencies that really work specifically with LGBTQ people reach out enough to allies. And I think that's the other piece of our work is really ally development and really getting people on board to, you know, for our community specifically, straight allies. Um, but we do a lot of intersectional work. So we also need white folks to step up and actually, you know, some of the training that we do in our university and some of the training that I do with the state association is around um, white accomplice development as opposed to ally. So accomplice means we're on the front lines where my black colleagues don't want somebody to, to just pay lip service and put something on their Facebook page. They want people to go out and actually stand at the front of the, the protest, stand alongside them and fight, fight the, the fight that we need to fight not just talk about it. And so that, you know, so there's a difference between just being ally and then moving into that role, but we do need that in the work that we do as well. And I think also just the not focusing enough on the intersectional side of our, our identities, because we're not just LGBTQIA, we're black, we're white, we're Hispanic. So there's a lot of different intersections that we sometimes ignore. And we know that in our community, 
racism is still an issue. Um, so really trying to join forces as much as we can to really try and align ourselves as allies in the communities that we work in. I think that's, thank you so much for pointing that out about allyship. I've done two previous podcasts and uh, a blog specifically dedicated to what it actually means to be an ally versus doing things like lip service yeah. or doing things to shine a good light on your moral character instead of actually making a difference. So listeners and watchers, you can go check that out if you want to learn more about how to be what I would like to call a true ally is what is what I ended up dubbing it. But I completely agree. I was actually recording a podcast yesterday. We were talking, I was talking to a LGBTQ club and they were saying that you don't see straight people come to these clubs because they feel like it's not their place, but it is their place. Because if you want to be an ally, you know, you're welcomed to join and you should join because we do want more unity in that area yeah just just thank you for, for bringing that up because i completely slipped my mind in this situation <laughs> that's why you have guests and that's why <laughs> so speaking of talking to a seeming void we're actually not we're talking to a lot of different people right now and if you could say one thing a lot of youth listen to this so say one thing to the lgbtq youth who are listening right now what would that be i would say there's hope there's you know i think we've heard a lot of people say it gets better and sometimes it's hard to see that it gets better because the world that we live in doesn't feel like it's getting better. Um, it does, you know, I think that's a, it's, that's a long-term investment. You know, it's not something that's going to be immediate, but, you know, I think that the biggest piece is that there's hope and to hang on, you know, there's always somebody who's willing to listen. There's no reason that you have to be in this process alone. There are so many resources that I, you know, we could spend hours talking about the resources that are out there that some people never use. The youth I work with um, oftentimes will lean on the Trevor Project, Trevor Spaces, and it's been a it's been a very helpful process. And you know, the, in between sessions between me and when I see them, or in between the times that they come in for my groups, um, so there are resources. Just I, I would encourage people to use them um, and not be afraid to ask for help. You know, that's you know, there's there's a misconception for a lot of young people. And maybe they've had messages from parents that minimize their, their challenges and their issues. But if ever in a situation where they feel like they're struggling and no one will listen, there is somebody that will listen, even if it's not your parents. The Trevor Project is a great resource and we've talked about it. I've talked about it before. Um, I do also want to point out that our website has an entire page just dedicated to different resources, whether you're an ally or if you're an LGBTQ person. We sort of, address intersect intersections of the community on that resource page. So we have specific resources for veterans and active duty service members, youth, students, parents, um, people of color, trans youth. So it's it's all over the place. So if you, you know, want more resources or if you've used the Trevor Project and that has worked for you, these resources may also work for you. So I would suggest you go check them out and, you know, second, I second everything that you have said. For me, if I could say something it would just be to never, what's the word? Underscore yourself, undervalue yourself. I feel like during this time, there's a lot of pressure coming from a lot of negative directions that maybe putting you down or making you feel like you don't have value or you don't have worth, but your very existence is proof that you do have value and that you do have worth. So never forget that. Never forget that there is somebody out there who loves you and cares about you and wants to see your smiling face every single day. That is what I would say. And it has come the time in the 
episode where I like to sort of open the floor for our cast members. But I like to tell everybody that I call my guest cast members because I'm a huge Hamilton fan uh-huh. and I have inserted that into this podcast and I will die on that hill. But if you have anything, any resources that you'd like to sort of plug, any social media or websites, do you have any that you'd like to let people know? Sure. I mean, if, you, if folks would like to know more about our organization, it's the Institute for LGBT Health.org. We are, you'll find all of our social media on that page. So we're certainly there. All of our group information is there. Um, volunteer opportunities, donations, all of that stuff is there. So it's, uh, we are here and we are here to stay. And, you know, an ultimate dream of mine is to have a camp. Um, I've been talking about this for probably 10 years now for a summer camp for LGBTQ youth. And we're closer and closer. We're looking at finding a space for that to actually happen not in our offices, which is what a lot of folks do for their craft camps, but we want to have an actual camp that involves some mental health around it and more of an outdoors and have some options for indoor as well. That would be so fun. Yeah. I just like, we need that immediately. Like that is such a good idea. I would totally do that. Yeah. That's, thank you for, I love that idea. I'm sorry. I just put a big smile on my face, but if you guys want to keep up with everything that's going on here, or if you have knowledge or experience that you'd like to share, you can come on the podcast as well. So our website is www.thecomblog.com. And you can follow us on Instagram at the.com.blog. I say this every episode that I hate that handle, but everything else was taken, um, including any other variation of the com blog that you can possibly think of on the planet. So you can still follow us on Instagram using that handle. And I just want to thank all of our listeners for hopping on and listening to the podcast, all of our watchers on YouTube, and you for taking the time out of your schedule to be here and speak on your expertise and your knowledge. And the last thing I want to say is if you are a student who is listening to this, you can earn service learning hours by making it to the end of this whole extravaganza because we are in partnership with Humanity Rising. I'm not sure if you know what that organization is, but it's a uh, organization that provides service hours and different service learning opportunities to students across the U.S. The COM is partnered with them, so you guys can work towards scholarships and becoming a Humanity Rising ambassador just by listening. It's really that simple, and you get to hear awesome people like this talk to you about mental health and LGBTQ issues. And with that, I think we can sign off. Bye, everyone. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.